What's going on, everyone? It's Greg Williams and Shakia Sykes. Welcome to the Grier Project podcast series. Now, you're probably like, Greg, what does Grier mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's five different letters that mean five different things. Gender, race, inclusion, equity, and allyship. Right, Shaq? Right. It's a podcast series that centers on celebrating diversity within New York City Department of Social Services, Human Resources Administration, and the Department of Homeless Services. We'll spotlight cutting-edge DEI practices and broaden listeners' perspectives on current DEI issues. On this episode, we're going to talk to Divine Williams, a media industry professional about diversity fatigue. All right. So honestly, I had a very, very crazy weekend. I had military duty. I don't want to get into it. I'm not. Why are you talking about it if you don't want to get into it? (sighs) Because I'm tired. And you know what? It falls into line of what we're going to talk about today. (laughs) Diversity fatigue. Are you tired, Shaq? I'm tired because I didn't sleep well last night. For some reason, I went to bed before 10 and I woke up at 1 and didn't go back to sleep. Dang. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like really big into astrology, stars, Uh and like tomorrow's the full moon. So emotions are at a high. I woke up today like heavy, uh, but I'm good, just heavy. (laughs) Divine was like, I gotta gotta go on a podcast today. I gotta get my energy right. (laughs) Hit all your chakra points. Yeah. I went uh, to an NDRE concert recently and I feel like she opened oh, something and I haven't been able to close that portal. It's nice, very nice. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So today, welcome everybody. It's the Grier Project podcast series. Grier, five different letters that mean five different things. I'm your boy, Greg Williams. And she always has that hashtag chamomile energy. Today, we've got Divine Williams. Divine has such an illustrious background that I'm not gonna get into it. I'm not gonna label. I'm just gonna say, I love where you ended up. Your journey to where you ended up over, you know, at, at NYU, Craig Newmark School mm-hmm. of Journalism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where you ended up and your journey getting there, I really have to like applaud because as a young professional, as a young person, like, it's not that easy. Like you navigating your way into that spot and just overcoming the the the, the hurdles, especially during the pandemic. I'm like, yeah, I'ma let you tell your story though. I just want to sauce it up for the folks. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, so Divine, I mean, a little bit about yourself. How'd you get there? You, you know what? Where were you born and raised? And let, let's get a little five minutes about of you. Of course. So I am Divine Life Williams. Uh, I am from Brooklyn, New York. I was born in Bed-Stuy, raised in Bushwick. Like, uh, I think my journey has been anything but simple, but, you know, it's what makes the process better. Uh, so, yeah, I what do you want me to go into like a. Yeah, like, you know, let people know who you yeah. are. You know, okay. you're from Brooklyn. I mean, everybody's going to be like, yeah, Absolutely. I'm from Harlem. Oh. Yeah, Shaq. Oh. I'm from Queens, but I live in Brooklyn. You see? Yeah. She she found her way home. She, she <laughs> you know what? <laughs> yeah, so everybody finds their way there at some yes. point. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I went to NYU. Uh, I majored in media, culture, and communications. A great space. And I think that like a lot of the experiences that I would I have after kind of like blend well into my experience at NYU was like a gateway drug. <laughs> uh, but I... Uh, got out of college in the pandemic. It was May 2020. I had no graduation until last year. Uh, And my career has been nothing short of amazing. I started off in TV production uh, Mm -hmm. where I was working with uh, 
a brand creative team that does campaigns for social impact. Uh, and there I kind of found this interest in diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging, uh, which bled into me going into like startup work consultancy. And now I am officially uh, an educational program coordinator at the Craig Newmark School of Journalism. Now, let's highlight your big project that you worked on that got all the hits. Yeah, Growing Up Black, uh, yeah. So, Talk about it. Growing Up Black was a digital series. It was born out of the George Floyd protests. Uh, it was almost a way to talk about the ways in which black people were being represented in media. Every time you look, you see like trauma porn, you see uh, the murders being highlighted, you see uh, negative representations, you have uh, if the black brute trope, you know, the Jezebel trope, all these things things that have been replicated and reproduced throughout time. Uh, and our attempt at growing up Black was to show that there is joy in America for Black people. There is struggle, but it's not all sad. It's not all bad. Uh, so we went around and we interviewed uh, people throughout uh, multiple cities uh, and asked them, like, what is your genuine experience of being a Black person in these United States? And what we found is that Everyone has a unique and dynamic path, specifically descendants of American chattel slavery. Black Americans uh, have this unique journey to becoming uh, and finishing up in a space where they feel victorious. So very happy to have worked on that project as an associate producer. Now, before we get in, in, into, you know, uh, our subject diversity fatigue, I want to ask you, yeah. what was your most favorite part about working on that production? And mm -hmm. if you could expound upon self-discovery you know, yeah. what did you learn about yourself working on it? A few things. Uh, one was the power of mentorship. Um, so I actually moved up the ladder uh, and production kind of quickly. An associate producer, specifically at the company that I was at, uh, takes about like four years to get there. And if you look at my resume, it took me about like one and a half. Uh, because I was really in grind season. I'm from New York. Everybody always tells you like, you know, you pick up, you go, you get going, you don't stop. Uh, and it wasn't until I met the producer of the show that I felt like supported, specifically as a, an entertainer or as a, in, a person in production. Oftentimes we find that like young black people are seen as like, you know, assistants. They're not given the opportunity to pitch ideas. They're not really seen as more than that. And oftentimes the time and investment isn't really given to them. So I felt like support was one. I also learned that like, uh, even though I was raised in a specific way where like I knew that my black was beautiful and powerful, that it was just so diverse and vast. You know, I didn't know certain things about the different types of music in Detroit and that like, Motown, but also like house music, you know, that like is specifically black. That's it's, it's a black American art form. Um, you know, I obviously knew hip hop was in New York, but you don't hear about like, you know, the, the large populations of black Americans in Los Angeles or like the dynamic city of New Orleans and like, or even like projects for black queer people in Atlanta um, and how like they work towards uh, the betterment of the city, creating an environment that's more safe. So I learned so much from that project. I'm so grateful to have been on it. Oh, that's so awesome, Deline. Our, um, it's so much diversity in the culture. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody, I feel like, has a story. You know, mm -hmm. we all have different stories, and they are just so interesting. Um, you know, maybe like we'll all get to tell our story one day. Um, but that is, and also mentorship. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the power of mentorship. Yeah. I think, you know, we come from different generations, um, and it's, it's just interesting how you had that support. 
I wanted to work in media mm -hmm. um, at some point when I had first got out of college, but I didn't have that support. So I kind of, you know, kind of switched careers because of that. So, you know, I love the way times are changing. Yeah. I really do. So, um, yeah. You hear about so much. I remember the project. Uh, I think it was a project manager, his name was Brandon Tucker, great guy. Uh, and in Growing Up Black, he mentions that like, really the issue is that they look at black talent and they say like, it's not there. Like there's, there's just no talent there. Like, but it's more so that growing up, you don't get the same resources and opportunities. No one's saying like, you know, I, I didn't even know that there were different types of producers. Like I thought that like being a producer meant that you were funding a project and that was that. I didn't recognize it in TV. Being a producer it means so much more. You have writer producers, you have people who go and just only do posts, which is I worked on a lot of pre and a lot of post, not a lot of uh, in the middle production. So like working on those questions, helping create those support guides. I was there to facilitate some of those uh, in the middle pieces, but really it happened in the edit, having to script those promos, uh, having to look at what we have, especially in reality TV production, where like we're not getting a script and giving it to someone and saying, act this out. You are literally taking people's words and creating a story and not trying to change what they're saying, but making sure that we get the best parts of what they're saying. Uh, and that, like, you know, that was all, it all came from having a mentor to be like, well, this is actually where you can go. Or if you like editing, you can do that. Or if you like, you know, actually holding the camera or being a part of that process, you can do that. There's cinemas, there's so many spaces in the entertainment landscape that you just don't hear about it. And like, yeah. That's great. It sounds like you're doing a great space for yourself and, you know, people are helping you out along the way. So we're going to talk about diversity fatigue today. So, um, Diversity fatigue impacts organizations in a negative manner. It's one of the biggest threats to creating equity in the workplace, especially for Gen Zers and Gen Alphas. So in your words, how would you define, define diversity fatigue? Yeah. I think the easiest way, the easiest word that comes to mind, obviously, is exhaustion. Um, to me, it's a direct uh, result of the impact of organizations or institutions uh, just attempting to create practices that are more diverse, equitable, and inclusive, but only creating it through placing that power, that responsibility on diverse people of diverse backgrounds. Uh, so. To me, it's a negative result of having workers who are already tired, already just trying to feel like they belong in spaces, attempt to like, you know, uh, create space or make space or make other people feel comfortable rather than being supported in those environments. That is a perfect definition. I like it. <laughs> um, also, you know, I, I just want to add that a lot of DEI professionals also experience diversity mm -hmm. fatigue because we work hard, so hard in trying to do the work and push it and you know sometimes people don't take our work as seriously um and they don't understand how important it is that's why the um important this podcast is so important because it shines light on that like yeah. the work is important and we need to have conversations around yeah constant conversations especially in the workplace yeah. and within our communities around this work so we understand that it's so important and um so others can understand that. 
Mm-hmm. Tell them how you really feel, Shaq. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I agree. I think so often you hear, like, even from an external perspective, you know, like, my passion is in DEI. So hearing, like, well, why do you want to do that? You just want to help companies fix their problems. Like, well, I don't want to help. I want to help my people. I want to help people not experience the things that I had to experience. And I think that, like, it's just the, the work is super important. And you get tired because you're fighting a fight that some people don't believe in. And sometimes you don't believe it's possible. But, mm-hmm. like, you know, you have to, like, continue to maintain that thought that what I'm doing is is important for the next gen. It's very important for me to be able to keep working and maintain longevity. Yep, I agree. Um, I That's why I got into this type of work mm-hmm. because I wanted, you know, I didn't want others to experience what I experienced yeah. in the workplace when I first started out. So I wanted them to learn and how to speak up and address different things. And, yeah. You know, even just like the smallest, like pushing the needle, like just a little is so good. It's so fulfilling. That's what's so fulfilling about this work. So, um, Divine, have you ever experienced diversity fatigue? And if so, how did you handle it? Yeah. Um, it, it, <laughs> I have so many examples that I'm trying to like focus and hone in on one. Uh, but I really would like to say that I think that the first experience of diversity that fatigue that I've experienced was actually at my undergraduate institution. It was actually at NYU. Um, and it's really because like I come from a very intersectional background. I identify as a black American. I identify as a low income first generation college student. I was uh, uh, I identify as LGBTQ, so like a queer. Um, and I think that like going into like a space that is NYU where like uh, students are very affluent, uh, oftentimes there is no ethnic majority, like it's considered the most diverse campus uh, in the United States. However, uh, you know, there's not a lot of uh, financial diversity there, you know, like there's there's so many other layers of like lived experiences that were different than my own, which was great. However, it often led to isolation. Uh, so when I would go to certain clubs on campus, I'd find myself being the only black person in the room or the only person that looked like me in the space. I'd be in a lecture hall of 300 students and I'd be two, one of two black people and maybe one of six males. Uh, and that was hard because it was, uh, it was a matter of looking out and saying like, I come from an inner city school in Brooklyn, a public school. And like, I went to school with all black and Latinx students my entire life. And now I'm looking around like no one looks like me. Like they don't identify with what I identify with. and. I didn't really feel like there was a space for me. And I would be on campus and they'd be like, well, if there's no space for you, then how about we like, you know, create a club and you go and you have, you feel this increased, uh, I guess, responsibility to be a student leader and create diverse experiences for other people and like give all of you to make people feel comfortable. And after a while you're like, geez, well, when are they gonna like pour into me? <laughs> like, you know, when are they gonna look at this and say like, well, yeah, Divine's been spending all of his time here trying to be a part of the Black Student Union and create, you know, a space or events that make new students feel comfortable or like we're going to speak to the MLK program and like be a mentor for them and be a mentor for this person. And that was kind of like the introduction to like diversity fatigue for me because I was kind of placed in these positions of hyper visibility and asked to perform and asked to make people feel comfortable and, you know, kind of exist in that way. Uh, and then later on, when I'd go into my career, it manifested itself in different ways that in television um it was signing into work and only being given like tyler perry uh, assignments where it's mm. like oh like every time i want to produce or i get the opportunity to write or do anything in production it's like well you can do this marathon for tyler perry I'm like i love diary of a mad black woman like the next person but like how you know that <laughs> like yeah. why is it my job to like you know create that space 
why is that an assumption? Exactly. And, and that gets to be grading. Why are you making these assumptions about me? Because of what you see on the outside. Right. Or, yeah. So that can get really draining. Right. And even the point you made. When are they going to start pouring into me? Mm-hmm. When are they going to start recognizing me and the work that I'm doing? Yeah. You know, like, I want to feel supported too. Yeah. Um, I've, I've felt like that in the workplace. Um, I even felt like that outside of the workplace. Uh, I have a spin certification. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm a fitness instructor. And one of the reasons why I became a fitness instructor because a lot of spaces, I was the only person, the only black person in the room. There was no one that looked like me, no one with my body shape. And I just felt so uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided to get spin certification because I wanted people that looked like me to feel more comfortable in that space. Mm-hmm. And that's what I do. I create a welcoming environment for everyone. Yeah. Um, so they can feel seen. Yeah, but you see like, if you listen to those words, it's like you felt the need to go that extra mile and create that space. And that was what I was constantly dealing with. Like it was, oh, like, well, if you see a problem, then fix it. Oh, this is a billion dollar industry. If you see a problem and you fix it, this is the exact reason why your content doesn't look, doesn't perform well in like, you know, certain communities. It's the exact reason why people are looking at this and being like, it's tone deaf or why you see dating shows. Most recent example is, I don't know if you've seen Netflix's uh, uh, perfect match, but like where dark skinned uh, women or women of color are feeling like you just pulled me on this show for spice. And everyone is like, well, that's not what we did. We cast it, but it's like, it's because you don't take the responsibility of creating those environments there. And I think that like, even within other spaces, non-entertainment spaces, I, you know, have worked in the DEI and I was in the office and especially after the pandemic where my first positions were hybrid and online, oh, totally. I didn't have that office culture experience, but coming in and literally being asked to like decorate the room or like, you know, like, you know, what, what do you think can spice up this office space? Why? Because I'm a queer person? Like, you think that, like, I am suddenly an inter- interior designer? Or like, oh, make this person feel welcome because I'm, you know, an extroverted, uh, you know, Black person and I can make people feel comfortable in a space. Like, I'm not a party promoter. <laughs> I'm coming here to create strategy. And you want me to do everything outside of my job description in addition to, like, my actual job because you guys can't create an office culture. That's diversity fatigue. It's going home and yeah, it's going home at the end of the day and feel like, damn, I just did three jobs. Like I did my actual job and then I did the job of an of, of HR. And then I did the job of a friend and a person like who's just a common, you know, decent human being that wants to make sure everybody feels good. But I feel bad. This is why I think Gen Zers have such a great voice mm-hmm. because um, your generation will point that out and be like, you know, this is this is not what you know I'm supposed to be doing, and you know I don't I don't you know I want to do my job. Yeah, uh, this is not, and and you're gonna help me fix the issue. Yeah, I, I have younger sisters that are Gen Zers, and that is their approach, and I love it, and I learn so much from them mm-hmm. um, that I can bring back. And yeah, they're only 19 and 21, but mm-hmm. they they offer so much knowledge. Um, yeah. So I, I really enjoy that. So can you tell me, in your opinion, what are some ways individuals can overcome diversity fatigue? I think some ways to like overcome uh, diversity fatigue is kind of like by setting those boundaries. And like, I think that like, that is something that like Gen Zers have like taken, you know, the reins on and recognizing that like, 
you don't have to say yes to everything. It's okay to say like, I'm not comfortable with doing that because that's out my job, that's out of my job description. Or even saying like, it's not my responsibility to create this environment. I mean, I'm not saying don't be yourself and don't want, you obviously naturally nurturers, et cetera. Like you're gonna wanna create that space, but you don't have to if it's, if it's, if it's taking too much of your energy to do. I think that like for me specifically, like in entertainment, I saw my role as disposable because there's so much talent that's there where like, if you don't want to do it, somebody else will, or if you feel like you're doing too much, like, well, that's fine. Somebody will do this for less money and less time. And I was like, yeah, well, no, actually like you need me because you have me here for a reason. That's why you want me to create this environment. That's why you want me to do this programming. So I think that setting up those boundaries in the beginning of your of your time there, saying like, I'm going to start and end at this time and going up and saying like, actually like, you know, I'm okay with like helping out with this event and you know, giving some advice or like being there to support my team, but I'm actually not gonna like plan the whole event myself just because you wanna panel on diversity, equity and inclusion or like, you know, responsibility and inclus inclusion in the workplace. And I think that oftentimes like, it's, a, it's okay to ask for that help from other people as well. Just as much as like, we need to be in the conversation as DEI, as people of color, as people from diverse uh, salient backgrounds. I think other people have unique experiences that they can, you know, use and that's the importance of allyship and those experiences and pulling them into the conversation. So for me, it's all about boundary setting. I agree and, you know, diversity of collectives. So, you know, people don't talk about that. Like bringing mm -hmm. everybody to the table because we all have like our like the way we think is so diverse. So we have all have something important to bring. You know, one person doesn't have to be the spokesperson mm -hmm. or the DEI or the face. Uh, we all can contribute. Yeah, yeah. So really, what I wanted to 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 pivot to is something that you alluded to, but I want you to bring it. Bring it on more in home, Divine. Mm -hmm. And and my thought process when Shaq and I was building it, we were building this show, I just said to myself, you know, why are we just restricting this to the workplace? Because I think diversity fatigue is everywhere, you know, and, and I really wanted to bring you on the show because you can give this perspective, you know, uh, that's unique to the topic of media portrayal, mm -hmm. you know, uh, of people of color yeah. and different ethnicities and representation and underrepresentation and all that good stuff, which I think all of that, you know, you still tie that into when you come into work in the morning. Mm -hmm. I believe what happens in your home does affect how you come into work. You know, when Shaq sees me come in with low energy, she's oh, he must have had a, and I'm like, how you doing, Shaq? And she's like, where'd you get this burst of energy? Because I'm like, I'm putting on the mask yeah. now. Let me get my chakras right. You know, and the same thing with Shaq. Like when Shaq has her head burrow, I'm like, I'm not gonna mess with her. I really feel like, okay, what you get at home is what you're gonna put in at work. So I wanted to talk about diversity fatigue as when people turn on the television, you yeah. know? And I really wanted to get your perspective because you belong to that Gen Z, Gen Alpha. We're millennials. You know, when I'm hearing your fight in the DEI space, I'm like, okay, well, we done fought for, well, we kind of built our generation, you know, with, with the, with all of the BLM and the Me Too movements, mm -hmm. we're laying that groundwork yeah. and I'm not putting it in a perspective and I don't want people to misconstrue this. We're not doing no, oh, Martin did this or Obama. No, we're not doing that. <laughs> I'm just saying, because, you know, for us, we didn't really have this when we started out, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, and you have a lot of people in the workspace now, they're millennials, they're baby boomers, 
And we're just, we're reveling it and we want to see the Gen Zers and the Gen Alphas win. Yeah. And we want to also kind of see their fight because yeah. it's now time for us to take a step back and see how far can you take it? Yeah. You know, because we weren't talking about DEI on workspace about 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. We were still talking about EO, equal yeah. opportunity, you know? Yeah. So, um, I want to point this out. Let me lay the groundwork, everybody. Uh, in 2020, the National Research Group conducted a study and they found that 91% of the Americans that they surveyed believe that media has the power to influence society. Now, check this out. 83% of African-Americans believe that the media perpetuates a negative stereotype of African-American people. So I wanted to know, you know, what you're watching on TV, you're taking that in, you might get mad when you go to bed and you're expected to, per to perform at work the next day. You know, uh, how does the, the, the whole perpetuation of one's ethnicity or identity impact what they bring to work the next day? Oh, I think it impacts it in, like, it's incredible. I think even just think about the, the distrust of the news that like, you know, specific communities have because of the way that they're like seen and portrayed, the usage of the word thug when, or, or other uh, stereotypical uh, patterns and trying to like represent, and you're going into work and you're thinking like, yeah, I'm gonna, I, I'm being seen by the world in this way. Every time I've turned the news on, I'm being seen in this way, but like, I'm expected to kind of go into work and, and, and be that professional, be that young, happy, uh, go lucky, high performing individual when everybody's looking at me in a, in a negative pattern. And I think that's the importance of like now shows like Abbott Elementary and like the show or even Insecure where you're able to see like, well, you don't have to be one particular way. Like being a black person, I'll speak for myself, uh, means that I am nuanced and I can be a school teacher who's neurodiverse or I can be a, a, a Janine who like is, is high performing and like maybe a little annoying, but at the end of the day, like I do my job and I'm loved for that. I can, you know, come in and I can be an Ava and I can be, oh, I can have multiple grinds and really push myself. So I think that like, it's important to like have that kind of diversity uh, in uh, experiences or narratives in, t in television. And I think that kind of goes into like, kind of like my interest and like why I got into this space. Um, actually, when I was in high school, I interned at NYU Langone, right? Uh, and I was working uh, and I was doing research for spatial epidemiology. I thought I wanted to, you know, study diseases. And when I got to college, my first time taking a global public health class, I was like, no. Three weeks in, I was like, this is boring. And what am I actually interested in? And I realized it was population dynamics and seeing the ways in which populations exist and how they navigate the world and reaching those people and creating programs that impact those people. That's when I recognized that like, well, what is the best way to reach people? It's media. It's that messaging. It's saying like, well, it's, it's, it's creating that commercial and like having those words go out and being like, wait, I resonate. It's being able to, I don't know, be like Issa Rae and produce a show that like for the first time doesn't have any examples of like black trauma in terms of like murder, you know, like you're going in and you're just watching a woman navigate her insecurities and the things that make her nervous and like having to recognize that it's never going to go where you're always going to feel these things. You get more comfortable and you learn how to deal with them as you get older. Um, and I think that like so often we got that for for in white television. We still get it. We got Sex in the City where like Harry Bradshaw literally was broke as hell, like just walking around, like no money in the pocket, a column that gave her like a 10 cent every 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 word. And she was cool. She had $40,000 worth of shoes and she lived in Manhattan on Perry Street. 
you know, like we see, and, and we almost got close to that with like girlfriends, right? Where we start to see these professional women living their lives. But even then you've seen the stresses of being a black woman dating and coming from your law firm and hating it. But you felt like you had to do it because you didn't get accepted to design school. Your parent put that pressure on you to like be a lawyer because you knew that like, I needed to escape my social standing. Um, and I think that like media does that for people. It actually is the space where you see new jobs and you're like, huh, what you mean I can, I can be a hit, I can find hidden figures, like, you know, like, or what do you mean I can be, uh, I can play chess, professional chess, you know, like, and oftentimes we don't actually see black people in those roles, in those dynamic positions. So like, we kind of just see us in like this uh, superhero, magical trope. I just had this conversation yesterday where I realized that like every time we're a Disney princess, like, you know, it's something you turn into a frog or you're a mermaid and you're not human. Recently, the most recent example, a pressing example is Yara Shahidi as Tinkerbell. Everyone is so mad that like, you know, she doesn't have blonde hair, that she's like you know, a, a black woman as Tinkerbell. You know what I'm mad about? Why is she a silent character? <laughs> like she's silent. I like that. Every single role that like we see, you just have to be this mythical, magical creature. You can't be like uh, nuanced. You can't be, and that's that's impactful because as a young kid watching these shows, you like have to want to be Carrie Bradshaw to like want to be something cool in my life, or you know, like that. That's that's impactful because like it limits what you see or like how far you think you can go and it, that psychological turn like you know impacts you and I, there's this thing called front stage backstage theory in sociology where like you know oftentimes before in the past and you know before we had cell phones and the internet you could say like i'm gonna go and i'm gonna perform and i'm gonna be one way at work and i'm gonna come home and i have time to be my full self in my bedroom but now with all the screens and like, you know, all the shows and TikTok and Instagram reels, you don't have that same ability to like turn off. You're always on and your perception is constantly skewed. Your, constant, your mind is constantly moving. And that's also how you get fatigued. So I, I'll, I'm going to date myself. You remember that movie Hook? You ain't never seen Hook. No, I've never seen Hook. You ain't never seen Hook. I, Shaq, you remember Hook? You remember Hook? Oh, now listen, wow. I was so happy because, you know, I, was, I, I I'm, I'm, I'm black and Latin. But when I saw Rufio as being a person, I was like, oh! And then I saw half of the Lost Boys were African-American and, and other, you know, uh, I, I think I saw one Asian-American or Pacific Islander. I saw a couple. I was so happy. I was just like, oh shoot, I felt like I belonged. And I wanted that Rufio sword so bad. And my grandmama did not give it because <laughs> she was just like, you ain't gonna look like, and that even showed me as a black grandma, you can't be happy that Rufio, he may not be black, but he's a person of color. I can't have the Rufio sword because you don't want me to look like him. Microaggressions. It was just wrong. It was just yeah. wrong. She shouldn't let me have the Rufio sword. I'm still mad about my grandma about that. Maybe anyway, find the Rufio sword I'm going to somebody find me the Rufio sword. Um, but the reason why I wanted to bring that part up is because I want to expand the minds of DEI professionals who are out there. Take this into account when you're building your programs. Divine said it. Your people at work are always on the, the screen. I'm not saying it's contagious. It's contagious. <laughs> you, Even with leadership. Yes. Like, creating policy and stuff. Yes. Yes. Keep in mind, yes, yes, that your people are always on. They're on at home. They're on at the bus, the train, in their car. They're always on. So you can't just do the same old DEI check in the box stuff. 
And uh, yeah, I'm gonna just throw it to Shaq now because I'm mad about my Rufio sword. That <laughs> took me off. Greg, you are a true example of always being on. Always on. Yeah. Always, always on. I want my Rufio sword. Yes, we're gonna find it. So uh, do you think that diversity fatigue looks different across uh, the generations, the different generations? For example, millennial um, diversity versus Gen Z's diversity fatigue? Um, I think it looks different, but I think it's only because we have the language to call it out or the vernacular. I think that like it always existed in the ways that we've seen it, like, you know, the way that we're hearing about it. But it's tough because y'all or not y'all, but like other, yeah, other generations didn't have the language. Like it was a matter of like you couldn't call out like where. That's why I said I'm happy when you coming mm -hmm. up with this stuff because. Woo! Yeah. We, language, it we, was developing. We were creating the vocabulary. Yeah. Language. Yep. Um, and then your generation kind of pushed it. Yeah. Yeah. Created more. Yeah. And now we we oftentimes are able to create more opportunity to call it out and pass that on. Yeah. So like with social media, the ability to disseminate information, like there was there's literal TikTokers whose entire jobs is to talk about like that work, how to handle situations in the workplace. And now we're like, yeah, what do you mean? Like when it's time to think about a race, I know I go straight to TikTok and I'm like, mm, you know what? I have been doing three jobs and you know what? I have been at work until nine o'clock every day when I'm supposed to be there till five. And you know what? I am like uh, experiencing microaggressions and I know what that what that is. And I even though like it existed for a while, I recognize like I need to call that out or like this. Um, this is what HR is for. And this is how I can write an email to HR. I can go to Google and literally say this is a template of like how I want to reach out and have that conversation. I think that like uh, there's we have an ability to a, a unique ability to recognize the toxicity and like jump and say, like, actually, I don't have to stay here. And I think that like for specifically for like people like my parents who worked in a place for like 15 years and you know, like no raises, no change, recognizing it, but it's like, I have to provide and I gotta make sure my kids can do things like go to NYU when we come from low income backgrounds. So I'm gonna just do it. Um, and I'm not gonna lie, I'm gonna small up myself for lack of better words and I'm gonna just endure. And we're like, no, because actually I did go to NYU and I do have these resources. And even if I didn't go to NYU, I have these resources. And I know that there's another job that will take me and do better for me. And if they don't, guess what? There's another job. I'm not saying be a serial hopper. <laughs> I'm not saying constantly switch careers or jobs, but I think that that's the difference is like we, we are a little bit less, more fearless. And part of that comes from like the work that Gen Xers have, have done, you know, and like that starting that conversation so that we can continue to push forward. I think just knowing your value, you, you really know your value. And it's like, if you don't appreciate it, if you're not gonna create visibility in space for me, I'm gonna go and take my value elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So um, that, that's what I enjoy and that's what I learned from. But you staying here with me, Shaq, right? Yes, of course. I love this work. Hopefully y'all are better. creating diverse environments. Yeah, what? Oh, are we, oh, whoo, we got the racial and gender equity toolkit. Y'all know where to email us here at the agency. But if you don't work at the agency and you still just want to email us, I mean, you, you listening to the show. It has the subscribe information and everything. I'm, I'm sorry, Shaq, just end the show. My bad. I have such a tendency to do that. So today I'm going to do something different. Divine, do you have um, one closeout, one final thing you want to let us know about yourself or um, just the work that folks can take away? I think uh, a good place for me to like kind of like end is that we have so much power 
to use our voice and I think we should continue to do it. I know that like with diversity fatigue, you can often feel like you have no space to move forward or you just can't do the work, but that's not true. Continue to push yourself and will yourself to do it. I think that like with more programs and events uh, to create those uh, you know spaces for people to have conversation like this, uh, to get those toolkits and like that mentorship that we spoke about earlier to tell those diverse stories. Uh, I think that like it's important to recognize that we have the power that our generation, even like Gen Xers, Gen Zers, we have that power to continue to move us forward. And as long as we continue to use our voice, we're going to end up in a great space. Sounds good. Um, yeah, it's it's all amazing. The mentorship and creating space and visibility in the workplace and even within our community outside, it's, um, it's all amazing. So with that, I'm going to say goodbye. The Grier Project podcast series is produced by the New York City Department of Social Services, Human Resources Administration, and Department of Homeless Services. You can find us on the web at www.nyc.gov/dss.